Well, welcome back to Hanging with History. This is season one, that miracle that happened, that one time. And this is episode 109, Beauties That Pierce Like Iron. I gave a very high-level summary of the major advances in the iron and steel industry in episode 106, but episode 106 was action-packed with all sorts of inventions and attitudes discussed, and we even touched on the Royal Navy as the tool which ended the slave trade in the 19th century. The thing with iron and steel and metallurgy in general is that it's obviously vital to the modern world in obvious ways so obvious that we might overstate its importance to the Industrial Revolution. It was really textiles where the dramatic growth occurred. Textiles were like 75% of the economic growth that absorbed the huge populations of workers created by the decline of the Western marriage pattern. And because textiles were so important, and economic historians are just another group of monkeys, They've come up with a lot of brilliant and, at the same time, ultimately futile scenarios where they might argue that the Industrial Revolution could have been had without steam power or steel or improved metallurgy. How could this be possible? Well, you see, they didn't need the Watt-Bolton steam engines in the 1770s, the one that efficiently converted coal into rotary power because water power actually powered the vast majority of cotton mills. And certainly all the very early mills were powered by water wheels. And we have the example of France, which mainly industrialized without the use of the steam engine, although they were a bit behind and only really started to develop a lot of heavy industry in the 1880s with the advent of hydropowered electricity. They really didn't have a lot of heavy industry ready until about 1914, which was just in time, really, but that's another story. So the Industrial Revolution without the steam engine, sure. The problem with that counterfactual is that the steam engine came along so much earlier. The improvements in metallurgy also got underway so much earlier. By the time the great advances in textiles became widespread, There were hundreds of Newcomen engines dotting the landscape of Britain, and these engines fascinated people and required many thousands of people to be trained to maintain and repair the damn things over the decades. Their presence can't be ignored. With the advances going on in textiles, the inventive genius, the flexibility, the minimal capital demanded by the textile industry, there's just no way that that genius and flexibility would not express itself, or should I say, manifest itself in other avenues as well. And we also see massive increases in patents, just a huge jump starting in the 1760s, a ten times jump. And these new inventions are for many different industries, not textiles alone. It was textiles that first overcame all the obstacles to improvement, you know, like lack of knowledge, lack of skills. Among them that allowed textiles to triumph, people all over the North and Midlands were trying to invent many, many industries. So, iron, the second most important success story. In episode 110, we'll do steam. Wrought or bar iron consumption in Britain was 10 or 11 pounds per capita by the year 1740. Fifty years later, 1790, it's 21 or 22 pounds per capita. Again, consumption, not production. 
imports from Sweden were very important. Sweden was producing close to 25% of the total bar iron in the world in 1740. And by the way, most of this stuff comes from the unbound Prometheus. And this was just the highest quality available in the world at the time. But a variety of problems stopped the Swedes from increasing production. They just sort of plateaued after many decades. Anyway, while the average Briton was consuming over 20 pounds of bar iron, the most expensive kind, this doesn't count cast iron, the average Frenchman consumed only about 5 pounds per person, and Germans even less. And this speaks to relative poverty again. For example, wagon wheels in France would be covered with hardwood strips rather than iron. And this comes from The Unbound Prometheus by David Landis. So, iron had this impact on textiles, too. When they needed fiddly little bits of machinery to be stronger, they were made of iron. No problem. Everything else was. Iron frames for textile machinery became common, as were overhead chains and pulleys for moving materials along in the factories. From a historian's point of view, it's just too easy to segregate off all the textile advances. They behave differently. The advances in textiles seem so neat and logical. The flying shuttle, by making weaving so much more efficient, creates an enormous demand for thread and yarn. The spinning jenny is the logical response, allowing for more yarn and thread to go to the weavers. Now there's an enormous need for clean, carded fibers, and the mule is the logical response. The putting-out system can't keep up with the increase in demand, so we get factories and satanic cotton mills, a logical response. Children are put to work in the mills, and we end up with all these forms of adult education. The demand for raw fiber pushes up cotton acreage in India and the southern U.S., which creates demand for ships, which needs Royal Navy protection, which accidentally makes Britain the preeminent world power. There's a whole logical framework. History makes sense. One, things, one thing follows from the other so neatly. The iron and metallurgy side of things is much less neat. It depends way too much on accidents and lucky breaks and weird contradictions. Although we'll see, the fiscal-military-state rivalry is also vitally important. It's contingent history. It certainly could have happened differently. A scientific mastery over metallurgy was arguably not achieved until the end of the 19th century, or even after World War II, if you want to point to steel produced by humidifying and oxygenating air blown over the melted iron. It's only at that point that you get some certainty where events can logically follow. Early iron making was an artistic endeavor, a craft where the iron maker would have to judge by appearance, color, texture, odor, what was really the right recipe. Every source of iron is slightly different chemically in the amount of phosphorus, silicone, oxygen, and other impurities the ore contains. William Rosen uses the neat line, quote, The process of casting iron was highly problematic since iron ore is as variable as fresh fruit, unquote. Therefore, it has to be made a little differently everywhere, and even output from the same mine changes by the vein or depth of the mine. Because there's no scientific understanding, no possibility of measurement of impurities, you just have to develop a knack for it. And it's not just the iron ore that varies. Your furnace varies. It's material or lining matters. The amount of air you can blow in matters. Will you cast it in clay or directly into the earth or a ceramic? That matters too, and of course, temperature. 
I mentioned the phase changes in iron that happen at around 900 degrees Celsius and 1300 degrees. There's no way to measure that either. They could know things like violet fire made good wrought iron. They didn't know that the fire would be consuming carbon dioxide at that point. Consuming is not the right word. And of course, you get violet fire from the combustion of carbon monoxide, not carbon dioxide. Eh. If you know the right term, email hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. The oxygen would be gone. They would have a more malleable product. And so we're simply going to have to accept luck and accident in this whole part of the miracle. Because it started so early, Abraham Darby, a Quaker, started using this coke-fired blast furnace in 1709. The miracle could be said to have really started with iron. This might have been the real beginning. Except this is history, and there are so few real beginnings, because Abraham Darby, Quaker, was probably not the first to coke coal for making cast or pig iron. He had a great uncle, Baron Dudley, whose son, Dud Dudley, I know, terrible name, Dud Dudley claimed to make coke as early as 1619, and was able to produce about three tons a week by the mid-1620s. We knew about this because Dud wrote a book on the subject, which was written as if it was an early investment prospectus for a new furnace operation with basically zero details on the making of coke uh, after he had several failures. Uh, For me, Dud Dudley is more interesting for his biography and the fact that Abraham Darby might have known his history. Dud was a bastard. So the patent he took out for making iron using coal was put in the name of his more respectable father. His furnace was wiped out by a flood after about one year of operation, and he could never get back to running it. In the next decade, he seems to have got control over a couple more furnaces, but they were leased out to other producers. Then he ended up a soldier in the Bishop's War in 1639, where Charles I's army had a disastrous showing. He then fought on the Royalist side during the English Civil War as General of Ordnance to Prince Maurice. Captured at Worcester in 1646, he and some other Royalist officers were caught out in the woods planning a Royalist uprising in 1648. He was convicted of treason and sentenced to death. He escaped from Gatehouse Prison in Westminster during sermon time and then lived undercover as Dr. Hunt, a physician, and he did practice medicine. Though remembering the state of medicine at the time... If he was a fraud, he was probably no worse than the, than the rest. After the Restoration, Charles II denied all his claims for land and new patents. But he got involved with the first use of the reverberatory furnace for making lead. And he must have known a fair bit to be taken on by serious partners, who did quickly kick him to the curb, though. But he went on to make copper and iron in reverberatory furnaces. So to what extent Dud made coke? fired cast iron were not sure. 20th century chemists have claimed that the coal he used had a sulfur content too high for useful coke for iron making, though of course we can't be sure they tested the actual coal he used if, say, he had some limited success. Anyway, Abraham Darby was born in 1689, five years after Dud passed away. He might have grown up knowing people who knew about Dud, Darby's father was a locksmith, 
So he's an example of the downward mobility Gregory Clark cites as useful to English cultural values around business. Mentioned last episode, there were barons and earls a few generations back in the Darby family tree. Darby's father may have been a lower middle-class tradesman, so no university education was going to happen there, but he could afford to send Abraham to Birmingham to apprentice as a malt roaster. So the 14-year-old Abraham spent seven years learning all about baking and roasting malt for the purpose of making beer and whiskey. So by the time he is 21, he's mastered a trade and been accepted as a member of the Society of Friends. A Quaker, William Rosen, has a nice quote, And it is by no means clear which proved the more important in his life, indeed, in the history of industrialization, unquote. The Quakers are still a persecuted religious minority at the time. Just a few years before, the Act of Toleration was passed as a consequence of the Glorious Revolution. But they could still find themselves roughed up, and they were denied political participation. And like many persecuted minorities, they took care of each other. It's sort of a truism that minor levels of discrimination lead to better group outcomes. Anyway, Darby moves to Bristol and starts a malting business but then joins an all-Quaker group dedicated to breaking the Dutch monopoly on brass making. At the time, brass is favored for cannons. It's slightly better, but much more expensive than iron cannons. Quakers by this time had chosen pacifism and were not allowed to manufacture weapons, but they could make cups and spoons, and brass was the popular choice for cups and utensils. The problem was that the Dutch made it far more cheaply than the English. But how? What was their secret? Because in England, brass was carefully and painstakingly cast into loam, taking time and much highly skilled labor. So Darby actually goes to the Netherlands in 1704 and sees how the Dutch cast brass into sand with his own eyes. So he comes home and immediately begins experimenting with the local sands. And eventually he finds a sand that works, and along the way finds a sand that works for casting iron as well. And he takes out a patent on his own for the iron casting. The key is now, if he can get some pig iron, he can cast iron more cheaply, while the brass company can go cast brass. So Darby moves to Colebrookdale, buys the old furnace, and starts experimenting with making coke from the local coal, which happens to be, by pure luck, if if luck exists, extremely low in sulfur, enough of which gets baked out by the coking process to be used for iron making. Darby would have used coke as a malting fuel in his business. It was an innovation of the time. You couldn't use coal because your beer would taste like rotten eggs. It's possible Darby knew about the low sulfur coal from his connection to malt roasting, so it's not luck at all. He would have deliberately chosen Colebrookdale for its coal qualities. It's too funny a coincidence, though, if yummy-tasting malt and good-quality pig iron are related via sulfur. As far as his product goes, we think Darby sold some pig iron to the Bristol refineries, but mainly he made pots and pans cast in sand. This is a gigantic advance because there are not enough trees in Europe for the size of the iron industry to come. But like all these advances, a decade or more would be required for the engineering of a thousand little steps to enable Darby's techniques to be used with less desirable materials. And it was probably 
30 years around 1740 again when half of iron produced was coke blasted and could be used to make the more desirable, malleable wrought iron. These challenges would prevent people on the continent from ever using Darby's methods. A couple more considerations here. Blast furnaces were limited in size by the amount of air they could blow through the bellows. Coke allows a vastly bigger furnace than charcoal, so volume of air became the next constraint, and this wasn't really solved until 1776, an important year, a ludicrously important year, as we've noted before, when cast iron blowing cylinders invented at the Karen Works was combined with Watt's rotary power from a Bolton-Watt steam engine. Blast furnaces produce pig iron, which is fine for casting, but too brittle to be worked and isn't structurally strong enough to support a lot of weight. So you need to refine it into wrought iron, or sometimes it's called bar iron. And that takes a finery where the working class heroes of the time worked the bloom of the melted pig iron. They would use long poles to manipulate the metal. It had to be immensely strong, physically powerful men to work heavy weights at a distance. The main technique was to heat, cool, and melt again and again until you got wrought iron. It took longer to do this than with charcoal-made iron. But it was still cheaper to follow this method, so by 1788 was about the time that half the wrought iron produced was from coke-fueled pigs. Then Henry Court's puddling and rolling process made the coked iron dramatically cheaper. Though, of course, many years passed with many small improvements before the technique could be widely used. But the combination Court came up with of hammering out the dross, dross being the word for impurities and the ore, and squeezing out dross was the best method for some time. By best, I meant it went about 15 times faster than simply hammering out impurities like they used to, and you could output useful shapes, standardized shapes like beams, bars, and rails. So you can see a pattern somewhat like what we saw in textiles, starting from a point of undeniable, practically unbelievable luck with Darby's Quaker and Coke malting experience, his random discovery of a cheap method for casting iron, and he just happened to have one of the only a few seams in the world of coal suitable for the coking to make iron at the time. Like Huntsman's luck with steel, with just the right local stone for the furnace and ideal local clay for the crucible, after that suspicious amount of luck, we see new technologies run into problems, and everyone involved knows about this and understands and tries to solve. These lead to continual improvements and new inventions. They make the material cheaper and cheaper, more accessible to people. And it becomes easier and easier to use for the new applications other people can dream up. The fuel economy for pig iron went from 8 tons of coal per ton of pig in 1730 to only 3.5 by 1830. And for fining, they were using 3 tons of fuel, and the puddling process got that down to 1 ton of fuel per ton of wrought iron. Early puddling drew off about half the pig into slag. Joseph Halls invented a furnace bed that was able to reduce that 50% waste to 8% in the late 1830s. And this is all very important because iron was the high-cost industry of the early modern period, making it was about as complicated as people of the time could handle. Most furnaces only ran half the time. You have to have the right flow of water for the bellows, and charcoal making was often uneven, 
a steady supply unavailable. So the changes we're discussing, dropping prices to the end user and amounts produced are amazing. In in the 1780s, France was still producing more iron than Britain with three times more people. But by 1848, Britain was producing 2 million tons. That is more than the rest of the world put together. France is left in the dust, and so making all that iron required a lot of coal. England used about 10 million tons in 1800, four times that by 1845, and 100 million tons, 10 times more, by 1870. And, of course, to dig the deep coal mines, you need steam engines to pump the water out. And so, back to the idea that you could have the miracle without coal and steam power. Maybe you could, but the but the pace of advance would certainly have been slower, especially in metallurgy. I mean, the U.S. industrialized based on water power. The coal in the Appalachian Mountains was too remote to be accessed much before the oil could be got in Pennsylvania. Oh, a, a little digression on Pennsylvania oil since uh, we went there a few months ago. The drilling technology, those derricks you've seen, were first used for drilling salt water in some geologic formations there. They got the idea of drilling for oil from the salt drillers. But the salt drillers were a very hard-drinking bunch of men, and the first oil drillers would find wanted to find teetotalers, just because of their own aesthetic preferences, and faced several years of failure because they could find teetotaling drillers, but they couldn't find teetotaling drillers who were also competent and capable. So they finally gave up, and the hard-drinking culture of oil drilling was the result. I bring this up because oil and hydropower used to generate electricity could have provided power enough by the 1870s to power the miracle, in theory. But in history, we can't really be certain the miracle, which after all was consolidated by the defeat of Napoleon, would have survived. Other proto-industrializations had happened before and always failed. American industrialization up to the 1850s was mainly water-powered. Possibly the leap out of Europe that the miracle made to America was really the insurance that the miracle wouldn't be destroyed by continental elites. But with Britain victorious against France at the end of the Second Hundred Years' War, it was obvious to all the powers in Europe that they would have to change in order to compete with Britain. The whole fiscal-military state rivalry would be different after 1815, and also exactly the same in some important respects. As usual, this is all connected, but first let me just put to bed the idea that the miracle could have happened without coal and steam. Maybe, but it didn't. And so Britain having all that coal was just good luck. Well, the amount of luck we've seen already is absurd. Part of the context we've had is to show the luck. Massively bigger and more powerful countries try to invade England, and every time, every time they get smashed by God's finger... The first three failures allow Elizabeth to hold off the rapidly growing Presbyterians without the need of a civil war. Otherwise, we might have gotten a very different England. We would certainly have gotten very different Presbyterians if they had the kind of success seen in Scotland. The Independents and the American Puritans would not have been the same after gaining power. And, of course, the Darby and Huntsman luck is absurd as well. Okay, that's too distracting to pursue for now in an episode about iron. It was John Wilkinson, known as Iron Mad John. Not Iron Man, but Iron Mad John, 
who made the advance which made the efficient Watt steam engine practical. And he did it because of the whole fiscal military state, international rivalry. He invented a technique for boring out cannons as opposed to casting them, and he could do it with a very fine... And he did this by inventing a method to rotate the cannon while holding the boring tool fixed in place. Well, what James Watt needed for the separate condenser was a very, very, heretofore impossibly precise cylinder. Iron Mad John could now make one. Now there's nothing to hold back the age of steam. Am I overselling it? Before Watt, the Newcomen engine, after decades of improvements, notably by John Smeaton, was using about 30 pounds of coal per horsepower hour. Watt's invention, thanks to cannons, brought that down to 7.5 pounds, which would soon be reduced to 2.5 pounds with further improvements. The first high-pressure engine was produced in 1804 by Arthur Wolfe, the first commercially successful one, I mean. I mention the cannons because Smeaton actually predicted Watt would not succeed with his engine because the technology of the day did not allow for cylinders exact enough, precise enough, nice enough in the usage of the time for the condenser. But because Iron Mad John was inventing for an entirely different purpose, he could produce Watt's cylinder. I wouldn't call it luck, but it was serendipitous. Uh, we also get into the marriage of science and technology issue quite a bit with steam power, which we will cover next episode. And again, no conversations with Cami until I've got a few more episodes recorded. Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>